Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the HR Revolution or Evolution. It's the revolution of HR for the evolution of business, where we invite guests who are leading in the space in both people, strategy, people analytics, workforce analytics, all the amount of names that we have now heard in the strategic side of HR, but really finding that proper alignment with the business as well as the people to ensure that the business is always going to maximize its performance over time. Um, and with us today is my friend Bobby, who is also working on this passion project of mine uh, together uh, because we are fighting for the future of HR. And Bobby, please introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Bobby Spaziani. And as Kevin had mentioned, um, you know, this is a passion project that, that he and I took on close to a year ago. Um, and really, you know, the foundation of it stemmed from where we saw the HR function today and where we saw folks kind of coming from, you know, more of a party planning administrative function to a function that really adds value across the organization. Love that. And with today's guest, we have Jakov uh, from former uh, BP, but really excited to have you on the show with us today uh, because you're focused on the people in the strategic side. This has really been your focus and your baby over time as we've kind of followed that laundry list of a career that you've had at some pretty well-known organizations like Mercer and BP, um, really some forward-thinking organizations. But could you quickly introduce yourself uh, to the audience today and, and uh, what, what it is and why you're passionate about working in HR and with people? Yeah, um, happy to do that and thanks for having me. Um, so if we go get back to the beginning, the reason I got into HR was a bit of a funny one. I was working uh, as a team leader uh, when I was 21 and I was the sales manager for about 20 odd people. Um, and we were trying, we were some of those pesky people that you'll meet in the streets that are trying to sell you uh, memberships of NGOs. Um, and it's the kind of job where you, you have to ask a thousand people every day on the street whether they want to you know, sign up for some sort of membership. And if you're good, then 990 of them will tell you no. So, you know, you get a lot of rejections. <laughs> and one, one particular day, um, it was in, in the middle of winter, which is relatively cold in Denmark. It's not, it's not like Arctic, but cold enough uh, that, that it's uncomfortable to be standing outside the whole day. Um, and I, was, uh, I went to talk to one of my employees, and he was standing on a bridge where it was particularly cold and particularly windy. Um, and he looked a little bit like, a, you know, he was, he was wrapping a, a big jacket and looked a little bit like a snowman because he was covered in <laughs> snow as well. Um, and... I went and said to him, how are you doing, Louis? And he said to me, well, Jacob, I mean, if I'm being honest, not particularly well, but it's like when you come by and talk to me, the wind blows just a little bit less. And I thought there was something very interesting about that statement uh, <laughs> um, and, and how it sort of reflects on, on human mo motivation. So I thought that that's something I need to uh, to get into some more. So I went to university, uh, as you do, uh, and first started uh, business administration, then went into to do uh, a master's of HR. And um, it's funny that you mentioned the party planning, because I'd say probably about 80 to 90 percent of the people I studied with really, really enjoyed party planning for some reason. <laughs> so that was that was a big focus of my class. Um, but at the time, I was working for uh, for Maersk, a big international uh, shipping and oil conglomerate at the time. 
uh, which was very much not about party planning. It was very much about hardcore business. And that was just more sort of my niche. So that's what I've continued to do ever since. That's fascinating. And we, we talk about having a life outside of uh, HR and, and, and Bobby can relate to sometimes we're, we're, we're taking we're hearing everybody else's problems. And sometimes um, we're, we're solely focused on uh, making sure the information is is in the system properly. Um, but we don't really know what we're putting into the system at the same time and, and how valuable that that data is. When did you, I guess, come yep. to the determination on how powerful data really was to better serve the organization? Well, so, so I guess I started working with data relatively early in that I, I worked on some sort of uh, one of the early projects I did in Versk was um, our CEO, uh, Niels, once uh, asked, um, and this was before our People analytics really existed. It, probably that they were talking about it in Silicon Valley, but it hadn't really made it all, yeah. the, way, all the way to Denmark yet. Uh, I think we had one guy uh, who, was, who was doing kind of some people analytics things, but they were not really called people analytics. Um, anyway, um, so our CEO asked uh, HR, um, finance, and payroll, which was separate from HR, um, for a FTE to mm-hmm. revenue ratio which seems to be a, you know, a reasonable thing for a CEO to have. So you can, you know, check whether, <laughs> whether your investment into your people is paying off. Um, however, mm-hmm. he got that number, a very, very different number from, uh, from those uh, three places that he asked. And uh, from what I'm told, because I was not part of the meeting, his uh, face turned a slightly unhealthy red color um, and he made it, you made it clear that this was probably a, a problem that people would want to address relatively quickly. Um, so I was tasked with taking data quality from um, from about 80% accuracy to 99.9 uh, in the manner of, I think I had two, two and a half months, something like that. Um, so, so it became pretty apparent very, very early on uh, why uh, this was important. Um, and I think it's something that I've sort of carried with me ever since because I, I then worked to optimize our the way we captured headcount uh, back then we were still even in a big company like Mars we were still struggling to cap, actually capture a headcount uh, because we had day laborers in Spain for instance they were hired in front of a warehouse every day and uh, no uh, HR person has the time to register 30 to 50 fields per person if you're going to hire people for one day um, so I think it, it, it got me sort of very early on into the meat and potatoes of why data matters and why it's difficult sometimes. Yeah, I think that's great, Jakob. And so, you know, in that example you provided, you know, I think you've seen the evolution of people analytics. What do you, in your opinion, are good companies doing today who leverage people analytics? And where do you think that function in particular is going in the future? Um, so you're asking for names of companies or, no, or no, more, more, more so of, of the good companies that are leveraging people analytics, what are you seeing those companies do um, to provide value for the businesses in general? Yeah. So, so I think first and foremost, and, and this is put very simplistically, but I like to sometimes put things very simplistically first and then elaborate and, and make sure, it please. <laughs> <laughs> but I think 
oftentimes I see company or I see uh, people analytics and HR in general asking HR questions like turnover and um, you know uh, attrition at various levels or um, you know do we have the bench strength to uh, to promote so we have succession planning and and then they do people analytics on on things that they're already interested in now the business is moderately interested in these things, um, uh, but they're really interested in making money. And I think this is yeah. a, a concept that sometimes I think escapes HR people because they really, they, they got into HR because they were really interested in people and they really wanted to plan that Christmas party and make everybody happy. But, but most of the business is really just trying to make money. And, you know, they, they do various bits of that making money part but you know that that's what they're trying to do so if hr cannot answer the question how does this make us money and it and and it doesn't have to be in all elaborate detail and you know the business uh, as a whole is pretty comfortable with you making some assumptions and then telling them what those assumptions are and giving them some sort of calculation that makes sense and i, I think that's sort of a, a the 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 core skill set um, that I sometimes see missing in uh, in HR. So I think in in more direct answer to your question, what does do good uh, people analytics departments do, or good HR departments, or people and culture, or whatever you want to call them, departments do? They ask good business questions. They ask not, mm-hmm. you know, can we prevent attrition, but they ask why should we prevent attrition? Mm-hmm. Well, how does that make us money? Exactly. Is is attrition good? above you know a certain number or, or a good you know bad above a certain number and and good uh, below a certain number um and what are the exact business effects and how can we balance those with other things that we that we might sure. want to achieve in the business so it's really about you know are you asking for that business outcome and do you understand how what you do impacts the actual making of money somehow mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen that too, isn't it? I've, I've seen like HR almost um, unwilling uh, to want that scorecard sometimes, I guess, uh, to really start to, as they peel back the onion, um, sometimes they're uncomfortable with what that data is going to expose about their effectiveness, right, in HR as the people people. Um, as we're kind of building out efficiencies and a lot of organizations, let's say outside the publicly traded S&P 500, um, international organizations of, of 40,000 plus employers, small to medium sized businesses feel like, the, why is it worth the investment? Why should I invest in people analytics and people data, right? Why should I care? I'm only an employer of 1,500. What have you seen on just like a micro level of how much better bit, like decisions businesses start to make when they are have this knowledge at their fingertips? Um. I mean, so I'd probably balance that a bit and say not all organizations have the scale for people analytics. You need a certain number of people just to pick up the effects because inherently mm-hmm. in psychology and, and therefore in HR, the, the effects are small. And if you have uh, small numbers of employees, you might just not, you might never pick anything meaningful up in in your data mm-hmm. um so so that i think that's one consideration which is kind of throwing a spanner in the works into, into your question but mm-hmm. sorry about that um no please i would say 
I would say if, if you are a smaller company, then look to um, things where, look for the big effects. So you'd want to focus on something where, where the effects tend to be larger. Engagement is a, is a classic one to, uh, to latch onto because it, it links to so many other things. I, I, I've worked in oil and gas, so, so there tends to be linked to, uh, to the safety performance uh, on rigs. Um, and uh, if you tell the business in, in sort of a, a reasonable way that, that you can help them keep people safe on oil rigs, you get a completely different level of attention than if you say you can reduce turnover. Um, and I think it's relatively reasonable that, that keeping people from dying is just inherently more important than, than, than them leaving the company. Um, so, yeah, so it's about, you know, pick engagement. It's, it's a good place to start. Then I think um, you'd mm -hmm. probably, if you're a smaller company, want to find something that's relatively out of the box. Because I think if you're 1,500 employees, to roll with your example, unless you're a tech company... Um, and have you know tons of money, then you might just not have the scale to to invest on building out your own people sure. analytics or have the mm -hmm. know-how or whatever. Um, you know, mm -hmm. you might be one of those companies that just have too much cash and, and don't know to, what to do with it. Um, the first time <laughs> I met, uh, no, but I mean seriously, they do exist. I uh, the first time I met uh, Laszlo, who used to be Laszlo Bach, who used to be the head of HR at Google. Uh, he said to me, well, I mean, really the biggest problem we had uh, in, uh, and of course he's, he was joking, but the biggest problem we had at Google was whether the lobster bisque in the canteen was, was cold. That nicely summarizes that Google just had too much money so they could do, just do whatever they wanted. But if, if, want. we, if, we, <laughs> if we roll with, uh, with Laszlo, he now has a company called Humu. And Humu uh, does, a, does a couple of things that I think are, are interesting. First, they work with engagement, which, as I said, is a really important concept uh, to, to work with. And I think something where particularly small companies probably um, could, could do with something, uh, an approach that was a bit more structured. So um, <clears throat> they've, they've mm -hmm. sort of nailed the angle, if you will. Um, they, it also comes with analytics in a box around engagement. Um, and then connecting to your other question on where do, what, what sort of differentiates the good people analytics companies from the, the not so good people analytics companies? Well, another one is, one, one thing is doing all the fancy people analytics. A, a completely different thing is actually changing something in the business so that this becomes uh, a new reality. And that's why you see, you know, if you if you look to the big tech companies, Facebook uh, is doing it, um, Uber is doing it. They're structuring new teams. They, it used to be like business partnering teams um, in the, within mm -hmm. the people analytics function, but it's sort of transitioning now into more consulting uh, like teams. Um, Uber calls it decision science. So, so they're trying to built a, a sort of business partnering side that could really help uh, HR business partners design new processes in the business, new uh, ways of working so that it really becomes embedded. Uh, and why is this uh, relevant in the Humo example? It is because 
they have a, a nudge engine where they send you uh, sort of that they analyze your engagement, they link it to uh, to organizational priorities, and then they send you little nudges, little helpful encouragements to do the right thing. Um, and they, these are tailored to the individual. Uh, it's something that that, that that they do at Google, and they do it at a number of the other Silicon um, Valley companies in-house. <clears throat> but here you can buy it, uh, sort of um, analytics in a box solution and have your employees get some uh, sort of individualized coaching on how to work more effectively mm -hmm. together. And I think that link mm -hmm. from in your, in um, between business priority, engagement, and through to nudges that actually reach the end user, the employee, is a pretty powerful one. Mm -hmm. In your, in your, I guess, in your opinion, right, if we know that engagement scores have really lagged in that 33 to 35 percent, and I know that that fluctuates internationally, um, I think a recent article, and I, I don't quote me on the name of the article, but I believe Americans were, were leading in the most engaged employees right during this pandemic. Um, why hasn't engagement scores increased? If, we, if businesses have been focused on this for the last 15 years, why is engagement such a tough nut for businesses to crack, in your opinion? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, engagement is a, is a, is a complex thing. Um, I think there's, there are a couple of things. First of all, engagement fluctuates quite a lot. You would expect it to be low at mm -hmm. the moment because of COVID. And COVID is having a, a number of sort of effects if you look at engagement scores. People aren't that happy in general. They can't, they can't travel mm -hmm. as much as they used to. They don't see as many people as they used to. And, and there are just a mm -hmm. number of, of uh, you know, they're more worried about the job security and, and that sort of thing. So you would expect um, engagement to, to drop in such a scenario. Um, I think engagement is one of those things that, that tends to find a new normal. So, so people might be, you know, over time they, they, they're, they will sort of average towards the mean. Um, so you, you will just never consistently see people being super happy all the time. It's, it's not in, it's not mm -hmm. in the human nature to get out of bed every day and nature, you know, yeah. <laughs> around the house and just say, Oh, it's awesome. It's the best day ever. I mean, there are, there are, I think we can all name a few individuals who, who can do that. We but, might think our neighbor was a little off of that. If that was the case. <laughs> hey, I mean, we, in, in Denmark, we have a, a very f a famous guy who, who moved to Hollywood and he, he sells creams. He's called Ole Hedmeksen. And he's he's one of those, you know, people who can get out of the uh, bed every day with a big smile and, and run around and, and be super happy and energetic all the time. But I think for for the rest of us who are <laughs> not so lucky, I, th <laughs> I think we should be happy to just be like relatively engaged. And I think we, we need to... Yeah. Um, remember that, you know, engagement is really supposed to measure your willingness to uh, to invest in the organization that you work for. And if we look at pe how people have behaved during COVID, I mean, I think it, it's becoming more and more clear now that, that the main reason that people were just as effective, if not more effective, working from home as they were before was probably because they were working more, uh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. about an hour more uh, every day. Um, 
maybe this was the, the time they saved on transport, but but they were working significantly more. And this is, of course, leading to, you know, people are being tired and burning out and all sorts of things because it's just mm-hmm. hard to work that much all the time. Um, and, you know, with with technology blurring the, the boundaries between our, our, our personal life and our um, and our, our, our business life, I think lots of employees are sort of struggling to, to find find the balance here. So we're, we're also sort of in a mm-hmm. state of flux. So, yeah, I, I think that was that was a slightly muddled answer to tell you there, there are a lot of things going on with engagement at, at the moment, and it makes yeah. it hard to sort of... And that's why culture... The, yeah, it's a sort of a signal and noise kind of thing. It's it's hard to find out what's really going sure, on. Sure, sure. And I think, so Jakob, I think when, when I look at things like engagement, I look at people analytics, I w- look at, you know, workforce planning, I look at them as kind of all inputs to this idea of people strategy. I know that you've navigated your career in different at different companies um, to kind of head people strategy. How difficult or what were some of the challenges that you experienced with the pandemic over the last year, year and a half, as it relates to kind of um, prioritizing people and strategizing um, the business around people? Um, well, it, it very much depends on, I think, the, the company and, um, and the sort of uh, the part of the, which part of the pandemic we were in. But um I've worked at, at different companies. I'm not going to name names here, but um, but I think early on in the pandemic, everybody, the only thing that people could agree on was that that they, you know, they didn't know what was going on. Um, so people were saying, yeah. "Well, we can't be strategic because we can't look ahead." Um, I think some companies that are a bit more forward-looking, and and I think uh, particularly in in oil and gas as a I've said, which I've, I've done a fair bit of work in, uh, investment horizons tend to be very long, 5, 10, 20 years into the mm-hmm. future. I think most people could agree that 5, 10, 20 years into the future, we'd some, probably you know, manage to, to maybe not eradicate COVID, but get some sort of level of control over it. Um, so, so businesses, uh, after they was, you know, they were kind of knocked out eventually. Or initially, that they had, you know, a hard punch to the face. They went down, hit the canvas, uh, you know, got up. They were a bit groggy, looked around, and then I think the, the better businesses quickly said, you know, I, I mean, eventually this is going to blow over. So we might just wait and see now, but we'll still come up with strategies. And you know, a company like BP still put forward uh, in the pandemic a, a relatively ambitious uh, strategy to transition from a um, from a uh, international oil company to an integrated energy company which was a massive strategic shift um, you know you're shifting from one industry or at least the emphasis from one industry or one part of the industry to another you're transitioning from fossil fuels mm-hmm. to renewables you're talking about integration you're talking about uh, you know reaching more you know dealing more with consumers and less with uh, with your traditional um, sort of uh, yeah tr- your traditional uh, oil and gas value chain so um, you know in in so, so BP was relatively ambitious and I think realized that that 
you know, five, 10 years down the line, this is going to be behind us. And we're going to need, you know, to also understand the, the people priorities of our new uh, business strategy. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to transition from one industry to another, that means you need new skill sets. You need people who understand solar. You need under- yes. people who understand hydrogen. You need people who are better at doing uh, consumer analytics if you're if you're going from B2B to B2C. Um, <clears throat> so all these skill sets you need to, to bring into the uh, organization, uh, either um, sort of by acquisition or organically. Uh, and, you know, I think with, with this kind of turnaround, it's, it's probably mostly going to be by acquisition. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Appreciate that. Yeah. And that changes a lot. And we see a lot of mergers and acquisitions. And, and one of the things that I've noticed or found fascinating is the, I guess the lack of investment into the identification of the people analytics side or the people side or component of that acquisition. Right. And I think sometimes they're focused yeah. more on the financials You've been working in the M&A space for a while now, um, and this is a space that's rapidly growing due to some of the economic turn or downturn during the pandemic itself. Have you started to see businesses focus more on the people component before they determine to buy an or, a, a particular business because they've learned the hard way and they didn't see that full return on the other uh, business that they had bought in previously? I think it's 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 very much business to business, and it's very much how recent is that having learned the hard way? Because it's one of those lessons that that that's tense. It comes around uh, every now and then, and then you know people forget about it again. Unfortunately, if it doesn't get ingrained into to, to processes, um, I think by and large. Uh, companies do too little in the due diligence phase uh, in the people space. They 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 tend to, you know, they, they do a little bit uh, of uh, of digging around in in employment contracts to see if uh, if there are any worrying clauses. Um, you mean- <laughs> they they look at the, they look at the comp and ben elements and see you know do we need to come up with some uh, retention clauses. Uh, are there any um, change of control things we need mm-hmm. to be aware of in our, in our benefit schemes and, and that sort of thing? So it, a lot of it tends to be very administrative um, and, and comp and ben mm-hmm. focused uh, is my experience. So I think there is an, there is an opportunity to start planning the, the integration part and starting the integration part earlier. I see the best the companies who are best at uh, M&A have uh, communication plans very, very early on, and they follow them religiously. They communicate to to the uh, to um, to the companies who are who are part of the merger every week, uh, if not more, um, so that you dispel some of the myths that always <laughs> pop up in in an M and A situation. They have very early plans to address some of the system integrations, which always tends to to trip companies up. I remember uh, referencing that um, example I, I mentioned earlier about the going from 80 to, to 99% in Maersk. We had acquired a company called PO Netloid uh, a couple of years prior to me joining Maersk. And, and that, the, the, the sort of uh, data effects of um, 
of acquiring that company and improper integration um, with the with the HR systems was what was driving the majority of of our data quality issues at the time. So it was things like, you know, we would get an error because we didn't have pictures of uh, people who no longer worked in our organization. Um, So obviously we were never going to get those pictures. So I just ran a script that that knocked all of that that out and put in little Lego, pictures of little Lego men and women or uh, uh, whatever it was. Um, So so that we would clear up those data errors. But, uh, but, but the point is, like the best companies have a very clear roadmap for their system integration, also on the HR side, very early on, and they follow it very religiously. And then, of course, uh, lastly, and, and this is the big one, and, and the one that's a bit sort of is a is a bit more difficult. I think is the cultural integration, having mm-hmm. some sort of target culture for for the firm that that you're bringing together, whether it's you're trying to sort of superimpose the, uh, the culture that you had in the original mm-hmm. firm on the new firm and, and having some sort of idea about, you know, are, are we okay with losing 50% of the people that we acquired mm-hmm. because we're going to force them, you know, they, they, they go from being a startup to being part of a, a huge conglomerate where, you know, their opinion, opinions don't matter as much as they used to do and they need to do a lot of paperwork and follow procedures and you know that's that's not what you know why they joined the company so just having an idea of what are you going to do from a cultural perspective and what are you willing to live with as a consequence of that because you can you can keep it more separate um you know have the, have them run as a startup within the larger conglomerate but then they're obviously going to go off and do do their own thing and then are you okay with that as business so it's really just about having that conversation early and then ha- having having made some of those um, made some of those choices early when you're not uh, under so much pressure I think you know mm-hmm. I guess if we go back to the, uh, the question of what do good people analytics uh, companies do it, it's just basic decision making you need to come up, uh, and, th- and this goes for people analytics, it goes for m and you need to come up uh, with a roadmap where you make good rational decisions at a time where you're not forced to have to make it in a split second. So you need to say, if we mm-hmm. end up in this situation, are we most comfortable doing A, B, or C? And make that uh, decision early on, and all the, the people that need to agree on it need agree on it. And then you, you go and implement. Mm-hmm. But if you try to have that conversation at the last minute, then you know you will not talk to the people you need to talk to. So your stakeholders will not be unhappy, and you will not be able. You will not have the time to explain it properly. So they will make poor decisions and, and all those sorts of things. So um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, would, I would say more involvement in in the due diligence phase. Um, but I mean that goes oh, back yeah. to, uh, to 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 to. HR tends not to be involved because HR hasn't always sort of been very good at articulating to the business why they should be involved. Right. And yeah. it's it's a process where there is a lot of tempo, big decisions are being made very quickly, lots of uh, money are being spent, and people don't really want people there who don't add value or who can't, you know, very quickly articulate why they're adding value. Yeah. 
I think that's excellent. That's a great point. And I want to shift gears just a little bit, right? I think some of our listeners are maybe new to HR or, or studying HR, ready to break into this field for the first time. Um, Jakob, um, where do you think the white space within the function is today? Where do you think there's areas of opportunity for somebody who's just stepping into the HR seat to really make an impact out of the gate? Um, well, so I, I'd say that, that HR is, is on a journey at the moment. I think you will still find a lot of companies who are still essentially doing personal administration, although I don't think we've, we've been called personal administration since the 80s or something. Somebody must give me a history lesson here if I'm getting that wrong. But I think that was around the time. Um, <laughs> right around, right around but, there, I think. Yeah, the 70s. Yeah. Um, but, but anyway, so, so those companies still exist. And, and especially in smaller companies, not so much in you know, the tech space and fintech mm-hmm. and all that. The, they they kind of know that, that HR can be something else. But in a lot of smaller companies, more traditional companies, there's still a, a fair bit of that. And, you know, if, if you enjoy administration, if you enjoy planning that Christmas party, then that's, that's your space, if, if that's the direction you want to go in. I think, unfortunately, if that's the direction you go in, you won't have history on your side. HR is transitioning more uh, to the, the strategic space, but there, there, is, there is still sort of, um, there's, a, there's a lag and a legacy there that, that's going to take us some years to, to clear up. So where do I see... Uh, mm. HR going. So I think um, when I give an example of what I think is is important in in HR, I like to to draw upon some of the some of the things I've failed at in life. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll give you two things I failed at. Um, one thing that I thought I was going to be in in my very early career or in my very early studies was an engineer. Um, I was very interested in computer at computers at the time. I played computer games. Uh, at one time, I had long hair and a beard. Uh, you can't see me on the podcast, but uh, I can tell you I, I do not have long hair and a beard now. I'm sitting here in a white shirt with the blue stripes and looking very corporate. Um, but at the time, I had long hair and a beard. Uh, and I thought I was going to be an engineer and I was going to build computers and write code and all that sort of stuff. Then I tried writing code and I hated it. Absolutely hated it. Um, but what I took from the engineering experience was being numerate, um, learning how to um, to work with data, um, learning how to use numeric evidence to back up your claims. Um, and I think uh, that's mm-hmm. an important skill set for the future if you want to be strategic, mm-hmm. because strategic conversations are inherently uh, at least partially about numbers, and if you don't speak numbers, then yeah. nobody's going to take you seriously. So learn the numbers. Mm-hmm. It might not be uh, what comes most naturally uh, to to a lot of HR people, but if if you want to play with the uh, the big girls and boys, then that's you know that's where it's at. Um, another thing I felt that was um, was philosophy. I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a philosopher. Um, before I started uni, I, you know, I was really uh, into my uh, my Nietzsche, and and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna sit there and, uh, you know, think big thoughts and figure the world out. Um, then I found out that 
philosophers don't make that much money and uh, and the, the pace was somewhat less than, than, than I was comfortable <laughs> well, you, with. You already had the um, long hair and the beard, so I can understand why you were pivoting that direction. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah I could sit there, you know, uh, with my long hair and my beard and stroke my beard and, and think deep thoughts. But uh, no, but I think... Um, there, there are a lot of good things that you can bring with you from philosophy. I think a lot of the, the, the coaching um, that is is important, an important skill set of HR, um, uh, is something that you can bring with you from uh, philosophy. And I think it's something that that um, HR people, you know, with with the data, but they need they need to work on their influencing skills. Um, I think it's uh, it's Plato that uses uh, Socrates uh, for, as an example of where he calls it being the midwife of ideas. And how, how are you the midwife of ideas? Well, you sort of plant little seeds uh, in the business. You give them little snippets of data. You, you say things in passing, and then you build it up uh, to the point where they think it's their own idea. Um, and I think this is a, yeah. a, a skill set that, that you know will will serve you well in, in any part of the business. But I think particularly in HR, uh, if if you want to be the sort of person who's able to um, to get uh, senior executives uh, to to give you some attention, um, so I failed at that, uh, but that. but I still took some some things from it. That's so, that's such a relevant uh, conversation there, though, and I'm so happy you brought that up because a lot of times when people are feeling that they're forced to look at something, right, like in a lot of those HR relationships with the manager, they're viewing manager of viewing HR as that necessary evil and HR needs to understand, well, what's motivating that manager? What does that manager define as success? Therefore, how can I make him or her better at their job? So therefore, we can develop a, a, a more let's say business relationship, right? I think sometimes nobody yeah. is willing to, to create those relationships. They're all trying to stay almost in their lane. Um, but you being on the people strategy side, you had to be in everybody else's lane. You really almost had to understand, I assume, of where everybody is headed, where's the business headed. In your opinion, we always want to talk about the future of work, right? Um, there's people out there saying that the pandemic has sped up what they had thought was coming in by 2030, 2025, and now in a matter of months has really pushed us to the limit. We hear works like buying talent, renting talent, growing talent, botting talent. As technology advances, like you and I said earlier, is if it were in HR, we're only the administrators. You and I both know what the advancements in HI and technology, that's the whole focus is how quickly can we can we replace that function? You being on people's strategy and always thinking five, eight, ten years ahead from a skills perspective, from a just the overall yep. labor perspective. What can businesses be doing today to really catch up? Because in, in my experience today, they're still three, five, ten years behind as to where the rest of the world is from a labor perspective and really where the future of work is headed. So where is it headed in your estimation and what can we be doing in HR and leadership today to really be putting out the right plans for the future? Um. I think if if I was, I think there's a lot of people at the moment that are talking about working from home, um, which is a relevant trend. But I think uh, is 
is unfortunately drawing people's attention away from the more important trend, which is more flexible workforce. Now, yes. more flexible workforce yes. is facilitated by working from home, but I think uh, what we will see, and you know, is it going to be five years into the future? Is it going to be ten? Nobody knows. But but I think we're seeing companies, certainly the more forward-looking organizations, have less fixed. Uh, contract labor. We'll see more contractors. We'll see more, uh, you know, people working on on different platforms where you can, you know, in IT you can break uh, tasks down to to very very small uh, increments of um, of work um, and and sell, sell buy and sell that on on platforms. Um, and companies uh, are going to tap more into this. Now, why are they going to do that? Well, you know, or in my opinion, at least, uh, of course, if I could actually prove that they were going to do this, uh, I would be a lot more wealthy than I am. But, um, <laughs> but my argument is as follows. Um, the world is more uncertain. Everybody's talking about, oh, it's a VUCA world out there and, you know, uh, all this stuff. But this, the, the pace of change is increasing. So what can you do when the pace of change is increasing? You can become more flexible. Um, and companies are doing this. Companies are using more, um, more sort of contracting labor. They're using technology, uh, video conferencing platform as the one that we're currently using. Uh, but they're also using um, data and analytics to, to you know, have big... Databases of, of skills. They're utilizing um, data from LinkedIn to to source the right employees. So we'll see more and more companies, you know, use technology to facilitate a more uh, flexible workforce. There are even companies, and I forget the name, uh, unfortunately, but there is one organization that that's basically at its core has a little bit of uh, analytics, um, and the rest of the organization is um, is essentially uh, just a network of loosely coupled uh, consultants um, and they they operate by um, by all, all the consultants having access to the same data and um, by seeing the same data they they, they tend to uh, make good decisions together um, now most companies will not <laughs> go down this very extreme route but they will they will start to do similar things if we go back to BP um, when you make a massive skills transition, there will be obviously be things that you build systematically and you need all along the way. But there will also be things that you only need for one or two years. You need to build up a certain technology platform. You need to you know, have change management experts that work for, for a period of time, whatever it might be. But there will be sort of sprints uh, if we're going with uh, agile methodology that you need to complete. And then once you've completed them, you've completed them and you don't need to do mm -hmm. them again. Um, and, and companies are increasingly becoming more savvy about, you know, um, using this workforce. Now, where do I think we're going? I think, um, you know, if, if I was to paint a picture, I think um, eventually... And I haven't seen, I've seen components of this, but I haven't seen a company really put everything together. But I would see a model sort of starting with uh, a strategic workforce planning um, that uh, includes contractors. Uh, so many 
companies do not include contractors in the strategic workforce planning and they forget a very important yes. part of the workforce. Um, so um, strategic workforce planning uh, at, at the forefront. And then um, sort of um, ongoing work in, in the middle where you have um, where you have a relatively um, a model that's relatively agnostic of type of employee. So mm-hmm. you will hire or use the best skill set regardless of whether that person is, is internal or whether that person is a, is a contractor in Shanghai or, or whatever the case may be. Of course, there are certain you know, security functions that you would want to always keep internal, but by and large, uh, uh, with, with a, a big portion of the workforce, you can actually be relatively agnostic about the, the type of person that works for you. And then um, um, a massive analytics engine sitting behind this that analyzes the, what all these people do and what works well. Uh, when we make choices in our strategic workforce planning, what worked well, mm. what worked less well for our performance. And then we sort of loop that back into our strategic uh, workforce planning so that we make better decisions next time. So mm-hmm. the, the sort of middle bit where you where you learn for contractors and you have performance management for contractors, I've seen some companies do some interesting things in this space, but, but the really coherent model that has all this that has performance management for contractors and uh, learning for contractors and, uh, and you know, feeds uh, back into the workforce planning, uh, I haven't f- seen fully yet. Um, but somebody's, mm-hmm. somebody will crack it someday and, and will compete, create, I think, true competitive advantage for their company. Oh, yeah. And I, th- I see people analytics as a competitive advantage. And thank you for obviously talking about the future of, because I think that's why Bobby and I get so excited about the, what's the possibilities in HR. HR is kind of almost like that last battleground for businesses to really finally understand what the heck's going on within their organization. A lot of the business challenges that they faced over the last 20 years, I think are really going to start coming to light and they realize that it's, it's more of that human component of the people component. And some organizations are waking up earlier to that. I think, like you said, FinTech and uh, the technology space, they had to because they were fighting over such a small talent pool. They already kind of went through that, that constriction of a labor force. So they had to, I guess, think outside the box on how they're really going to attract talent and how they're going to keep their talent engaged. Whereas now the rest of the world, manufacturing, logistics, everybody else is now feeling those same effects. And we're all thinking about, well, what's next? And a lot of it has to come down to reskilling and upskilling the current workforce that we have because there is a, a large gap today. Um, but this is why we're talking about the revolution of HR, um, J- Jacob, because it's it's really uh, for the evolution of business. And, and as we evolve as businesses, as, as people, as the socioeconomic climate continues to change, it's going to be those ebbs and flows. And you refer to it as those sprints, right? And those mile-long journeys, sometimes there's some sprints in order to get to that finish line. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Uh, I would love to do a take two of this uh, to really start getting into more of the specific side of projects that you've worked on. Um, But I think you gave everybody a real good taste as to what some of the power behind people analytics and what we can be doing in HR to propel ourselves forward as a function to really be that true difference maker within the business as a strategist. 
Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, happy to do a, a take two if you, if you'll have me. I still have a, a few stories that I haven't told you, such as my uh, uh, the job I once held as an octopus trainer. But we can cover that. <laughs> <in the> <laughs> Well, that will definitely make uh, worthy for a take too. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for uh, really kind of stepping outside your comfort zone as an HR professional many years ago and really showing how intertwined HR and business really can be. Um, And I think that I tripped into HR and then saw that. And I think the potentials are pretty much limitless. Yeah. Thanks, Jacob. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.